Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Jason here. When people ask me to recommend an episode of Think Again to get started, I always recommend this one with Robert McFarlane. His book, Underland, is my absolute, hands-down favorite book that I read in the five years of making this show. I mean, comparing the books can be apples to oranges, but without a doubt, this is the one that made the deepest impression on me. And listening back to it, I'm struck all over again by the journeys that he takes into deep physical space in the earth and into deep time. And by something that he says early on about how, paraphrasing Nietzsche, that when you look into the depths of the earth, they look back into you and they defy our mind's attempts to make sense, meaning, order, sequence. And while this might seem like a scary thing, and indeed there are plenty of reasons to be afraid of the dark, it seems to me that at this time in history, especially when all our attempts at command and control of the earth and ourselves, when so many of them are coming back to haunt us in unexpected ways, that we can benefit, we really need this kind of disorientation that looking into deep time and into the roots of nature can give us. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I'm underground as I write this, one day before taping the conversation you're about to hear, speeding through New York City subway tunnels that aren't all that ancient, but whose darkness and rats and crumbling esoteric infrastructure holds fear and fascination enough for anyone who contemplates them. Waking up this morning, notice how you wake up, not down, I felt my already barely remembered dreams sliding off of me in layers like leaves or hands, and the longing to submit to those hands and slide back down, underground, into the caverns of sleep. My guest today, Robert McFarlane, has dug deeper than I could ever hope to into the meanings and magnetism of the underworld, tunnels, caves, sinkholes, and the living fungal earth of our world and our imaginations. At one point in his new book, Underland, he brings up the fact that to a neutrino, our solid physical world is just a mesh. Mount Everest is a wide gauge net it can pass easily through. In McFarland's writing, the layers of the world are transparent, overlapping, always already present. He's often called a nature writer, but that's a poor proxy for what he actually is. A philosopher, poet with the gift of sight in the darkness, whose penetrating vision turns the world inside out. Welcome to Think Again. Robert. Well, thank you for that introduction. I, I can only disappoint your listeners now. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like in trying to figure out where to start this conversation, I'm having what must be the same problem or challenge that you must 
deal with in writing a book like this. In the book, I mean, there are specific adventures that、mm -hmm. you go on, but there are so many kind of lucid, metaphorical moments happening. Where do you even begin to think <laughs> about putting something like this together? Huh.、Uh, that is such a good question. And with this book more than any other, I think. Writers are always drawn to origin myths. Where, where, where is the ground on which this is founded? Right. But、uh, what I have known of all landscapes really is that they retreat in the measure that you advance towards them. That、mm. you never reach a point of settlement with a place or, or or a realm, which I guess the underland is. We might think of it as a realm.、Uh, if if there was a starting point for this. It was maybe growing up in coal mining country in、mm. Nottinghamshire, in the years after Margaret Thatcher had shut down many of the coal mines. It was maybe growing up above that hollow, riddled land、right. of 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 deep work and seeing the men that my father, who was a, a lung physician, treating coal miners with industrial diseases,、um, silicosis, black lung. Uh, seeing those men and the X-rays of their lungs, their underlands, it was maybe there, or maybe it was 2010 when you might remember that the Deepwater Horizon blowout occurred. Sure. Then the Icelandic volcano Eyjafjallajökull exploded. That was in the same week. And then it was that summer that the Chilean miners, 33 of them, were entombed underground in the big. Cave in at, in the Atacama below the Atacama Desert. That was a kind of a, a year when what was underground declared itself to the upper world with huge force and consequence. There is this line running through the book, which I'm going to misquote, and you should <laughs> correct me on.、Um, but but I mean essentially that that which that which is buried. Rises back、yes. up. I call these moments surfacings or unburials, and I think they are these uncanny, tending to horrific tropes of our time. To give you some examples of them, the melting permafrost、right. is no longer perma.、Um, it is yielding that which was held within it, whether that's methane, whether that's the bodies of anthrax-infected reindeer that died of naturally occurring anthrax a century or more ago, whether it's the perfectly preserved bodies of wolf pups or mammoths. These uncanny visitors from the underland are, are moving to the surface as we accelerate geological process. And I wasn't expecting this to be, as it were, the book's discovery that this ancient book that goes back billions of years, this ancient、uh, realm that is as old as as anything, and that we think in a way as we the further down we go, the deeper back we go. But our ability as geological agents has has meddled with that orderly sequencing, and instead we have this this rising, the Thwaites Glacier in West Antarctica, right, has. Uh, avoid at its heart. It has its underland is disappearing, and that disappearance has that melt has vast consequences for our future. So that sense of epochal entanglement is one of the key sort of encounters of underland, if that makes sense. I'm thinking of multiple things. I'm thinking of how one theme that runs throughout the book, and that I think. Is unavoidable, unavoidably part of looking at the underground is、yeah. the way that time operates or usually operates down there. It took me years to work this out, but、yeah. I think we've been telling stories about the underworld for as long as we have been human. I mean, our oldest 
kind of written story is the Epic of Gilgamesh, about 2100 BC in Sumeria. Right. One of its variants is a journey to the underworld in search of something precious. And what is encountered down there by Gilgamesh's servant Enki are the ghosts of Gilgamesh's dead children. There is a tenderness, a, a pathos, a longing to keep something safe or bring something precious back. These are the oldest stories. Right. And we, we have also been going for far longer than language has existed into darkness to make marks. And that handprint on the cave wall or the hand stencil on the cave wall is testimony to that urge to move into darkness in search of meaning, in search of different orders of time to come back to your great point. You, you talk about how there was kind of a fascination in the 19th century and kind of a literature of the underground and that it was often very much about going down there to discover resources, to find new worlds. We have journey to the center of the earth. We have the Poe story, yeah. a descent into the maelstrom. And, and it seems to me, and you make the point that in a way it's, it's like um, it's sort of a pre- colonization yes. of the underground. It foreshadows what we actually end up doing to the earth through climate change, unearthing these things that, that were long buried unintentionally. And what's interesting to me about that is it seems to be a nexus of the best and the worst <laughs> of us, right? I mean, our curiosity, <laughs> yes. our wonder, the things that lead people to explore the unknown, and also that same impulse which causes us to exploit and destroy Absolutely. That is, I mean, that's beautifully put. And that doubleness, this sense of it as a realm that has called the best out of us and the worst out of us, that absolutely mobilizes our faculties of marvel and wonder and a readiness to move without recompense into a space of darkness and ignorance, but also our most extractive, rapacious, colonizing instincts. And I do, I do see this, this body of work emerges in the second half of the 19th century predominantly, which is a sort of hollow earth fantasy mm -hmm. of which Verne's is the most famous. And I do see them, yes, I see them as hollow earth, Holocene dreams, basically, mm. be before we really maximize our ability to extract. We have drilled 50 million kilometers of oil borehole alone. We are termites. We are right, warren right, 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 makers. Right, right. We, we think of ourselves as this surface species, right, of builders, but we are burrowers and borers, and we are leaving warrens behind us that dwarf any ant's nest. I'm going to forget who exactly is drilling it, but this is in the north of England, this giant oh, yeah. underground system of tunnels and caverns that is originally, I guess, primarily a mine for potash. Potash, that's right. Right, yeah. but then is also being used for physics experiments and extends out under the, the, the North, North Sea. sea the there, North Sea. Yeah, yeah. It will be mine, Cleveland potash mine. And yeah, it's, it's exactly where these two stories of the pursuit for useless, astonishing knowledge and the pursuit of absolutely market-limited and market-determined resource come together. So there are hundreds of miles of what is called 
rather beautifully, softly drift, mm. which is, say, mining tunnel. And what's being mined there is the evaporated residue of a 270 million year old sea that we call the Zechstein Sea that, that spread over much of northern Europe and northern Britain and what is now the North Sea. It evaporated over millions of years and it left behind salts. These salts are valuable to us as rock salt to stick on our roads to, when, to stop them icing up and as potash to spread on our fields as fertilizers in the world's two springs. And so this warren, which I trucked through out to the mining face under the sea, five miles out past, you go past the coastline and, <laughs> and the guy I was with who was dizzy with imminent retirement excitement. <laughs> right. It was like, it was basically the Sahara dust rally, but underground. And he would just like say, yeah, we're, we just passed the coastline. Yep, yeah, we just passed the shipping channel. Yep, yeah, we're five miles out at the face. Um, and then, and meanwhile, back on, as it were, undershore is, is a dark matter research laboratory where physicists are trying to puzzle at the great void at the heart of our knowledge of the universe which is what the hell is 20% of 27% of the universe is mass made of and your description of the machines the boring machines <sighs> that when they are when they outlive their usefulness are just left in a mined out tunnel to gradually be subsumed into what is the substance? A halite, this rock halite, salt, right, yeah, right, which right. sort of flows <laughs> around them. And they are, and the really fascinating thing about those is uh, these are like 2.7 million pound boring machines, but it costs more to take them up to the surface than it does to once they're done for. Um, but they look like lizards. And so we, you know, we have from the uh, from the birth of geology as a modern science, early nineteenth century onwards, and we are still doing this. We drill down into the strata, we pull up fossils of lizard-like creatures, right, and we back read an Earth prehistory from those. And the Anthropocene thought experiment is: well, what are our future fossils? And the thought of a paleogeologist two million years from now drilling down into the <laughs> right. and finding these lizard-like kind of metallic trace fossils and thinking, well, what, what creature was this? This is this strange um, in-between trace that we are leaving. And we are leaving it everywhere because we are now planetary scale geological agents. You talk a lot about that, about what the mark of the Anthropocene will be yeah. on the Earth, what we leave behind. And plastic is, of course, a huge Surprisingly thing. Surprisingly durable. Talk about this substance that is formed when plastic burns and yes. fuses with sand. Yeah, and plastiglomerate. So plastiglomerate. And it's so ugly you can hardly <laughs> say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was just, I guess I was struck. You do an interesting thing where you present a lot of the horrors that are happening and that we have caused, but there is not, there's never a sort of table pounding polemic feeling about it, but that doesn't reduce in any way the political force of simply presenting the things as as they are. I am really glad to hear that. Um, I'm not a polemicist, though I, I am involved with street politics and campaign politics, particularly back in the UK. But I wanted here to write what for me was would be the most sort of temporally spacious treatment of the Anthropocene that I could, and a sense that this is an epoch which has um, which has deep roots and distant futures. And that was the aim. I didn't know how far it would be fulfilled, but to give form to this sense of us as these strange polytemporal beings who are busy pulling, as you say, buried matter, buried life <laughs> from far underground. We are burning the Carboniferous <laughs> um, <laughs> to melt a Pleistocene glacial formations, which will determine life 
in the future Anthropocene. And these temporal meshes, which we are so active in, but are so hard to see and think about because our mind is poorly configured to think in deep time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And one is struck by the contrast between the disappointing cheapness of what it is that we leave behind versus <laughs> so well versus put. the kind of complexity and mystery and strangeness of what there already is and was there and here I maybe we want to talk a bit about the the mushrooms and oh, the, yeah. the the fungal kingdom yes yeah let's do that <laughs> yeah. I, I mean if there is ever an idea to to shake the ground you walk on, it's probably this one. And this is uh, an idea which some, many of your listeners may well have encountered in one form or another, which is that trees and plants have a social network, mm -hmm. that there is what is now, I think, durably and beautifully called the wood wide web. Right. And the wood, <laughs> the wood wide web is formed by a very ancient mutualism. And I don't want to make too much of a political lesson of this, but I'm interested in ways in which we have made sense of this mutualism. The mutualism goes like this, and it's been around for between 400 and 500 million years. We know that because there's a fossil, effectively a photograph or a lithograph of this mutualism in action from about just over 400 million years ago. Wow. Okay. Um, wow, indeed. And the mutualism is that fungi send out hyphae through the soil. These are their mining techniques. Uh, they right. are basically miners. They look for resources and they send out these hyphae as explore, which are fine filaments of fungi. And they look for resources and they also find tree roots. And where they find tree roots, they interpenetrate with those roots at a cellular level, creating a cellular interface mm. through which can pass nutrients and to some degree chemical messages. Sing signals, yeah. Um, and they do this with dazzling intricacy and volume. In a heavily invested teaspoon of soil, there can be up to seven miles of hyphae. And they can connect enormous numbers of trees to enormous numbers of other trees. And then along that network, this what's called a mycorrhizal network. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Seven yes. miles in a teaspoon? In a teaspoon. What? Like just all coiled up? Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. This is like string theory wow. for the, for yeah, the yeah, fungal yeah, yeah. kingdom. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just amazing because they're so fine. Right. Um, so sometimes a, a cell wide or in diameter. And and along this network then, which is um, you know looks a lot like the networks we construct below our cities in terms of intricacy and signal possibility can pass resources. So the, the mutualism is that the fungi take basically carbon from the trees because fungi can't photosynthesize. Right. And the trees get back minerals like potassium from the fungi because the fungi are superheroes who can exude acids outside their bodies and metabolize these minerals out of the soil resources. Right. But also trees can pass not just resources between each other, but also signals between each other. Pow! And pow, indeed. And and so we can overlay, you know, metaphors like the web or, yep. you know, the internet or, as you say, the, the kind of grids beneath cities. And also, apparently, political metaphors yeah. where there are sort of competing schools of science as to whether whether this is some sort of hippie commune where <laughs> all, the, all, the, all the fungi and trees live in you know, beautiful harmony. harmony or whether this is a competitive yep. uh, libertarian society yep. or whatever. Yep. And, and the researcher that you speak with, what, what, what was his name? Uh, Merlin. Amazingly. Merlin, yes. Merlin Sheldrake. Merlin Sheldrake. Um, <laughs> Truly. Yeah, born to be a fungal researcher. Kind of. um, you know, what he points out is that this world is 
stranger than anything than, that we can imagine. And if you really look into it, it just blows many of our conceptions out of the water. Totally. This is what came to fascinate me, is how attractive the wood wide web is to our minds as a master metaphor, as a master trope for the underworld. It's all the things we cannot see. Aristotle defines metaphor as like unlikeness. Mm. Um, and in a sense, the wood wide web is, is a master metaphor. It joins like unlikeness, tree to fungi, tree to tree. All the things that seem disparate mm. become conjoined by a subtext, effectively, of dazzling complexity. And so what we make of that actually as Merlin says to me at one point, you look at the network and then the network looks back at you. And that <laughs> is the direction of gaze that interests me most in, in that chapter and generally is, is how we make what we make, what, what we make of what we make of this discovery. That's this question, as we've been talking, has been sort of bouncing in the back of my mind, which is, we are in so many ways fundamentally meaning-making creatures. Yes. This is what, you know, so much of what we do. Do you think that all meaning-making is fundamentally extractive? <laughs> that is a brilliant question. I, I think a lot about this with, as it were, my other hat on. The two hats are not separate. Anyway, I'll, <laughs> I'll leave the hat metaphor alone. Um, <laughs> uh, so I work, I work in a literature, I teach at Cambridge. And, um, and when my students arrive at Cambridge, very often what they carry with them is an extractive hermeneutic. A, mm. a poem holds a meaning as a treasure chest might hold gold or a crossword might hold answers. And the work of the reader is to unlock the chest, crack the crossword, remove the contents. Even um, these brilliant Cambridge students are coming still with this, there's an answer to the poem yeah. mentality. Yeah, they, they are. And that has, that has roots in our teaching of literature mm. and the difficulties of quantifying humanity's thought right, uh, right, right. at a mass scale which uh, so anyway that's another story <laughs> but um but they come in it very quickly they because they're brilliant they move beyond that and my acknowledgements are filled with my students names because they teach me so much more than i teach them but i talk to them about extractive meaning making and it's something i thought a lot about with this book because in a sense a book is a is an act of resource harvesting to mm. some degree uh, to some degree although i'm very interested in books as gifts and i've written books and made art that I have given fully freely without any need to acknowledge or to credit or to pay. Mm. So um, I'm interested in ways that culture can exceed precisely that extractive circle. But this, this is a book that doesn't explicitly do that. And I guess perhaps one way to answer that excellent question is to say that at least for me, I wish to make a book that did not answer its own questions explicitly. Uh, that to me would have been a, a form of kind of determining extractive reading of the underworld. Instead, I wanted to make a book that had its own complex underland that each reader discovers for themselves. This is why it's written largely in the present tense, except when it folds out into deep time in either direction. And also it is densely, I hope, patterned. It has a kind of fungal underworld that works away and, and each reader finds a different version of that for themselves. So I suppose perhaps that circles us back around to this idea, why is this not a polemic? Why is this right, not a, right. here are the things I have found and these are the things you must do. Perhaps that's an elaborate way of reclaiming openness as a virtue when in fact it might be a <laughs> function of lack of control, but I don't know. So. No, no, I don't sense that. Yeah, so what I, what I sense, I mean, and this is sort of why this feels like poetry in some ways to me, 
is that there is a deep structure. There clearly is an underlying structure and there are themes that weave throughout. You're carrying all over the world with you this, you know, yeah, thing your artist friend has made, I guess, yeah. where they've buried their worst fears, fears and, and hates, hates and, inside yeah. this brass artifact, the brass, yeah, bronze, bronze, yeah, bronze that they've created, casket, which you're, yeah. you're meant to bury somewhere. Yeah, so I am the nuclear waste disposal. <laughs> I'm the metaphysical nuclear waste disposal expert. <laughs> yeah. And we find, and you know, and throughout the book, places overlap. You are in yeah. Greenland, I think, watching calving of ice. You're yeah. seeing, yeah. Um, or, or maybe... Is it that, or is it the result of calving where you're seeing sort of like, you know, spires no, of ice right. sticking up? It's a calving up. event, and, and, and that's basically Paris falling out of the of, front of, <laughs> of, of a Greenlandic glacier. That's yeah, right. you're reminded of this cemetery in Paris where the bodies have broken through the cemetery wall into... To a bordering cellar, but that mm -hmm. is what prompts the filling up of the what become the catacombs with bodies. Yeah, and so, I mean, we have this structure, but it emerges in the same way that, or it feels like it emerges in the same way that the complex structures of myceliae and the you know the 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 fungal networks and stuff emerge rather than being planned in some kind of rigid and containing way from above it leaves that openness as you say i think for the individual explorer to get lost in it and and as such and i i'm going to keep babbling for a second here Dude. As, as such it's a book that you kind of have to learn how to read <laughs> as you're reading it because, again, the mind being such a meaning-making creature, mm -hmm. you know, you're always trying to figure out where am I, what am I, but, you know, you there's a certain, and here I'm reminded of... Um, of that old saw from uh, Keats, uh, is it the the about negative cap capability? Mm, yeah, yeah. I'm reminded, you know, you're sort of having to open the hand of thought, yeah. you know, to yeah. to allow the the thing to blossom forth and to allow yourself the luxury of not grabbing everything huh. that comes. That is, uh, you're one of the first people I've spoken to here about this book. I haven't had that many conversations. It's. It's really exciting for a writer to be, it's a real luxury and privilege to talk to someone who's seeing these things and making these things visible to me and particularly to hear you see, see in Greenland an earlier moment and an earlier moment which itself echoes earlier moments. And, and that is one of the ways in which polytemporality might be structurally present in a book like this that tries to move across billions of years and do all these things. <laughs> right. uh, so it's great that, that those echoes and shadows are, are, are there. And negative capability, yeah, Keats, um, if a, he says in this famous 1818 letter to Joseph Hayden, he says, if a sparrow come before my window, I partake of its existence as it pecks around on the gravel. And it's this lovely sense of the poet as what Keats in another letter calls the chameleon. Uh, I'm not Keats, I'm not a poet and I'm not a chameleon, but I am interested in in negative capability and the way it can beckon a reader into, if not embodied, at least philosophically palpable encounters. Mm. And, um, mm. and I think that, that that is exactly as you suggest, foreclosed by very declarative or determining forms of sentence or paragraph or tone. And it is, it is made possible, but riskily so, by these more open 
manners. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, the effect is not that of, as you were self-effacingly suggesting, sloppiness or sort of random. That's not the effect. Because there is great attention to detail. You go to these places and you do describe what you see. But even there, there's an interesting way that you're able to kind of capture the slipperiness of, of what you're seeing. I don't there's know a, how you do that. <laughs> uh, there's a Maybe there's a chapter, I don't know if you remember it, called The Red Dance. And this mm-hmm. is um, sure. this Let's seems to that. me to gather some of these things we're talking about. I'm glad here. that we're going to get into more specifics because I am I am wanting to talk in this very broad and airy way. So let's, oh, me that, too. That's I'm, good. I'm, I'm always drawn to the <laughs> to, to, to the abstraction. But this chapter or this journey happens in Arctic Norway or just near the Arctic Circle in the Lofoten Islands, and. There isn't much cave art up at that latitude for all sorts of reasons. There weren't many people. The glaciers are not that long gone. And it was really hard to be there as populations were scarce. Weather is fierce, so it kind of destroys what rock art there might have been painted rock art. But there are these incredible distribution of the so-called red dancers. And these are very simple figures which are made with three strokes. And they're left in sea caves just over a dozen places up and down the Norwegian coast. And they had three strokes, really. There's a kind of, there's a dancing leg, there's another dancing leg and then there's a cross arm and they're made with hematite iron oxide painted by finger possibly occasionally by brush on Mm. the rock deep in these sea caves and I made a journey to one of the most remote of these which happens in fact to sit opposite the Maelstrom um, the original Maelstrom this great whirlpool so you have this sea cave entering into the rock and you have this Maelstrom opening into the (laughs) ocean desert liminal spaces beckoning you know thresholds of worlds absolutely (laughs) Um, this was one of the most just obviously powerful symbolically and actually powerful places I have ever been and it's wild there's a intensity and immediacy you're alone in risky slippery yeah it was a snow conditions it was a different winter came back it was i probably shouldn't have gone over this mountain wall it was one of those ones and i i hope the writing about it captures my sense of my own kind of idiocy as well but i wasn't alone in that i was surrounded by other kinds of life and that was elemental life but also seagulls mm. and otters and it was a very busy place but in this cave some three thousand years ago other people made really strenuous journeys without Gore-Tex and without tents. And they made their journeys to this cave because it, to do so crossed two or even three thresholds. They came past the Maelstrom, probably in a boat. They crossed the threshold, which is the mouth of the cave. They crossed the second threshold, which is where light gives way to dark. And then these people who lived unbelievably arduous marginal lives, um, not long after the the glaciers had retreated from that particular space, and they were obviously all over noise still. They made art in the darkness. They made art in a place where the sea had, over hundreds of thousands of years, crashed a space in which art could be made. And that art, I realized when I finally got to it and could hardly see it at first, it's so faint. So it's like disappointing. Right. <laughs> what? I've come all this way. And they're not even yeah, dancing you, you for me. You didn't see them at all I at first. You're like, where they're not where here. Where yeah. are they? Yeah. Where? And, and, um, and then gradually they came into view. And, and they came into view because of my tiredness, because of the tears I was crying, <laughs> um, which were tears of stress leaving the body, of exhaustion, of disappointment, of of wonder and all of these things I realized were the co-authors of that art Mm. that there were the early makers there was the space there were the journeys that had been taken there was the water running down the rock there was the the living history of the way the rock had interacted with the hematite which was itself a mineral 
origin. It's not as though when we encounter something like that, we are stepping into an art, an air-conditioned art gallery. This was a massively dynamic moment of a kind of cosmic authoring of an art event. It's not quite the same, but I had similar sensations the first time I went with my wife to Cappadocia. Ah, oh, you've been there. Yeah, yeah. She, my wife is Turkish. So, wow. So we, I've been there a couple times. And I mean, the underground cities are cool, but like what first blew my mind were all of the kind of remaining Christian frescoes, that many of which have been defaced. And, you know, but just entering this, like going to a place where there is no guard, there is yeah. no yeah. entrance fee, yeah. there's nobody else there. There's like some sheep wandering around. And then these are sort of sand volcanic structures, really, yeah. that look like cones and such. And you walk into a hole in the front of one, and then there's, you know, there's the, the Last Supper or something <laughs> in front of you. With Damaged and yeah, sort eyes, of... Yeah, eyes scratched right. out, probably probably by angry Greeks during yep. the population yep. exchange. Yep. But man, I mean, you just sit there and look at that, and I don't know, you're hollowed out inside hollowed out. What a brilliant way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. It was a hollowing out. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, which I think relates to everything we're talking about in terms of making structures that aren't coercive, letting people find mm -hmm. their own way into mm -hmm. the narrative, is words. I mean, I don't think I'm the vocabulary champion of America, but it's very <laughs> rare that people send me scurrying to the dictionary. <laughs> um, and you have this love of the language of place, the precise yeah. language of geology, and which is deployed poetically. I mean, we hear words like karst, nice, you know, G-N-I-E-S-S, yeah. um, <laughs> schist, you know, whatever. I mean, the, you know, some that mm. are familiar and many that are unfamiliar mm. to me. And I had the sense while reading it, like, surely this man does not expect everyone to know every single no. one of these words. Sometimes they wash over you the way the landscape washes over yeah. you without allowing you to quite get purchase. Yeah. Yeah. It's lovely to hear you say those words. You say them so well. Um, there are many reasons not to like Ezra Pound, but um, <laughs> but in the in the <laughs> in the cantos he folds in quotations and fragments from many many languages. Um, you meet Chinese ideograms there. And somebody once asked him why he never translated them. And he said, I don't translate them because they don't need translating. When you, when you meet them in the cantos, they should radiate their own powers into what mm. surrounds them and also draw sense-making possibilities from that in which they are embedded. And there's a sort of a scientific or scientistic, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> reflex that wants to balk at that and call that a kind of mysticism or something and that, you know, want, wants to irritably reach after reason and say, yeah, no, yeah. We, we, those are specific artifacts of place and they have meaning and yeah. whatever, whatever. But That's I, fine. Yeah, I mean, which, you yeah, know, there's I a mean, place, loads of people, time and a place for that. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. and, and lots of people do go off and look these up. And I get <laughs> letters from readers who say, why do your books have no maps? I was so annoyed when, <laughs> that your books didn't have a map. And then they're like, and so I read it with Google Maps to hand. And I followed every, you know, every, yeah. every mile. And so everyone reads differently. And some people will be, um, what does uh, W.S. Graham call Word, wordy ghosts of the dictionary. <laughs> and, um, and we'll love the invitation to go and find them. But I relish specialism. I relish the way in which specialism concentrates down to single 
words that to me possess the glint both of poetry and of profound knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I celebrate the language of specialism in that. And to me, it's not an exclusory language. It is a language that speaks of long attention. And that language of specialism might be indigenous language. Uh, and, sure. and, and I do, uh, there are sections there where I'm celebrating the work of people like Robin Wall Kimmerer, uh, who is at once a botanist, a, you know, a, a plant scientist in the broadly Western sense, and also a citizen of the Potawatomi people, right. and for whom those two languages do different kinds of work, but both profoundly valuable. So I, I'm excited by specialism and, and I guess the language holds that. The other thing I'd say, if I may, about the language of, and particularly in the later chapters, the northern chapters, Greenland and Finland and Norway, is that I, I take a lot out of it. I kind of, it's, a, it's actually a style of subtraction rather than of proliferation and uh, so verbs drop out often there'll be almost like field note right field yes. note yeah. uh, shards or fragments and then i spend a lot of time kind of patterning those sonically so that they can almost be read as not poetry exactly but that there is there are forms of glint and echo going on and I came to realize that subtraction was sort of what this book is about. It's about all the things we've taken out of that we've, to use your verb, that we've hollowed out of mm. ourselves and the way that those spaces resonate. I mean, if we think of those early journeys into, into darkness, into cave space to make meaning, it is partly because of what is set echoing in, in the darkness. And so I began to take things away. Even with the most unsettling spaces you describe, even with the most unsettling effects of the Anthropocene, mm. the, the effect overall of what you're doing with place and language and the way that you kind of take us into these spaces feels generous. It feels reassuring. I, I don't know why that should be, given that there are many, many horrors, <laughs> many horrors on Earth. Many horrors, yeah. You know, but there is still, there's a great sense of comfort in what feels like a relaxing of the ego that is maybe that's it maybe there's something yeah. i i do know that underground spaces are some of the most tranquil i've ever been in they entomb in the best uh, deep time most comforting way but also the most frightening and maybe uh, i spend three days under paris in the catacombs one and there is a, a moment there that a lot of people are finding themselves unable to get past in the book. <laughs> there is kind of, is what cavers would call a squeeze, oh, right? Yeah, and yeah. if you can get, I mean, physically it's a squeeze and reader, for readers it's a squeeze. And uh, I've had people writing to me and say, at that point I had to put the book down. I could get no further. And I write back and say, Thank you. I'm delighted. I'm delighted. It's like the only time you ever want someone to put your book down is is when it's literally moving their bodies. People write and they say, "I just I couldn't I couldn't sit still. I was squirming." Claustrophobia is a fascinating phobia. It's reminiscent. I mean, you also mentioned a, a, a bit of a, a children's oh, book, yeah, right? The weird, the weird stone of yeah, which yeah. is quite reminiscent of that same yes, squeeze yes, through the, same the past. Squeeze. And I read that as a kid, and many people in Britain read this. This Alan Garner's great novel of the children's novel of the fifties, The Weird Stone of Brisingerman, and I read it. And I remember my, but you know, you, yeah, claustrophobia experienced vicariously loses little of its power. Your breathing starts to change. Your heart rate starts to change. This is just you sitting under an open sky, reading a book. What an extraordinary, vertigo doesn't have no, this. Right, right. That's right. That's right. And you know, Poe is also the great poet of, yes, of claustrophobia, absolutely. right? Being buried alive. and The pit and the pendulum. Yeah, yeah. And so buried alive is, a, so that's taphophobia, which is an evil. Okay, so that, that's, that's a little different. That's a specialist subset of claustrophobia. <laughs> okay. Most people 
have claustrophobia also have taphophobia. So. Sure. Uh, and I suppose the last thing I would say about claustrophobia is that to expand outwards again is that it came to seem to me a distinctive affect of the Anthropocene. Mm. That how often we feel it depends on who we are and where we are and how vulnerable we are. But as a species, the tunnel is narrowing. The ceiling is mm. dropping. Time and space are closing down. And I don't know if you feel this, but we're some of the most lucky people on the planet. But still, I feel that sense of the epoch closing down around us. I read an article in the New York Times the other day that was basically examining, like, should you travel in airplanes, yes. right? You are melting 30 feet of Arctic sea ice every time you fly yep. in a plane internationally. Yep. And, and that had a profoundly claustrophobic effect yep. on me because yep. I thought, well, you know, my whole life I was raised with the cultural belief that travel is such a fundamental opening to the world, opening to the world, human freedom, source of learning, etc. And the idea that we ought not to travel maybe is terrifying. Uh, well, that is that is one of the many c closings down, I think, and, and also that sense of an entangled culpability, which is a version of of what you say. I mean, that that's an example of the many ways in which scientists and climate writers, of whom I'm sort of peripherally one, are trying to make palpable and make visible these feedbacks and these 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 kind of moral entanglements of consequence and culpability. And and yeah, that is felt as a as an entrapment in many ways. And I think it's good. That's good. I think claustrophobia is, is something we, Bill McKibben said many years ago, he said, you know, we won't do anything about this until we feel it in the gut. Mm. You feel claustrophobia in the gut. No, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, not everyone, but many people worldwide are starting to share that feeling. Yeah, yeah. Now the question is how as polities we will enact that in legislation and, um, and so on. But then maybe that's, again, a story for another time. <laughs> This is, I think, as good a place as any to go to the go in the potentially totally <laughs> random direction of the okay. second part of the show, which is um, so for the listeners, we are going to watch short clips from Big Think's video archives. Huh. Each is on a specific idea, uh, past interview, and then see where the conversation goes from there. Great. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, so this first one should be fun. Um, this is, this um, is, I'm not, that's not a threat. That's not meant to be menacing. Um, am I allowed to take notes? Uh, <laughs> no, no notes are allowed. Um, this is, this is, actually, I have had guests take notes on the videos, but I, I you know, if you must. No, no, no. This is called Pheromones and Other Stimuli We Humans Don't Get with E.O. Wilson. Okay. 
we know less and we understand less of the world around us uh, than any person who doesn't know the, you know, the, the evidence can even imagine. We live uh, entirely within a microscopic section of the stimuli that are possible and that flood in on us all the time. Let me give you an example. We think we see everything, but we only see uh, electromagnetic radiation across a liter almost literally mic relatively microscopic section of the entire spectrum. You know, run running from uh, ultra low frequency radiation to gamma radiation, this vast array we uh, read, we can we get, and we can understand only a tiny, tiny fraction. We're not aware of that. Other, uh, the other animals in the world can uh, read infrared, and they can't see, uh, others can't see red, and some uh, move primarily uh, directed by ultraviolet, and so on. And we don't know exactly what else is out there. We know that um, a number of organisms use echolocation, bats are the familiar example. Others echolocate with electrical impulses uh, they uh, broadcast from their bodies, like electric fish and electric eels. We have no sense of that whatsoever. Uh, and yet uh, bats, uh, for example, can maneuver with fantastic speed and accuracy with just using echolocations from their own voices. But that's just the beginning. Uh, we are uh, completely ignorant or, or unknowing, except when we discover it by instruments, of the magnetic field of the Earth. Birds, birds mi migrate with it, many species do. Uh, the entire world of electrical perception, we sense electricity or electric uh, flow only by maybe a sound that it creates uh, or a, a sense of, a strange sense of um, vibration uh, and comfort on us. Other organisms use it all the time. But most of all, uh, is important of all, is that we are among the few creatures in the world that live in a primarily audio-visual world. Birds are another example. That's why we love them so, perhaps. Part of the reason we love them so, because they're using the same channels we are. And humans, when you think about it, communicate and they see and they understand almost entirely with hearing and sight. We are miserable when it comes to taste and um, smell. And I don't care how exquisite are the uh, finest restaurants and cuisines of New York's restaurants. We still only sense a tiny fraction of what most of the animal world is sensing. They live by pheromones. They, it means that uh, they communicate by chemical smell and taste, um, and they can communicate in a complex manner in this way. For example, 
uh, in my work, which I began in the late 50s with natural product chemists, uh, I and others found out that ants are communi uh, communicating by pheromones and that actually they have 10, to, according to species, 10 to 20 substances that they use to uh, smell and taste in organizing their societies. We have no sense of that whatsoever. I was reminded of a couple of times in uh, Underland where you spend time with somebody who spends a great deal of time looking at some aspect of the world that we normally don't see yeah. and then ask them, you know, <laughs> do you now see, see, do you see the world differently from other people when you look at it? And I was actually thinking that I, you know, it would make perfect sense to pose the same question to you after all of these journeys that you mm -hmm. went on. Not that you're, you've been a lifelong specialist in mm -hmm. detect, detecting neutrinos, but in, <laughs> in the way that you have gone about trying to look, look at the world. Well, I'll start with, it's great to hear you, Wilson. I've never, <laughs> I've, I've read so much. I've never actually seen him or heard him speak. He's like 90. How I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, how brilliant, yeah. and that that wit, and that sense of humor, and that combination of disdain and love for for our species <laughs> is very invigorating to me. So, and then I I guess I would start with the image of the uh, the mountain summit and the mountain pass, and mm. I was thinking about these as as I was listening to to E O W, and the mountain summit has we have been drawn within a Western imaginary towards the point of, of total knowledge. And that point has often been a, an elevated view. And now we have this, the, the satellite's eye effectively, which, right. we, which we think knows everything, but of course cannot see below the surface of the land. But for a long time before we took flight as a species, the mountaintop was the place where we could be most godlike, mm. where we could stand and look down through time and across space. And there was a Greek word for this, the kataskopos, the, the looker down. Um, and for a long time, I was very drawn to that idea that we might ascend to a, this is the enlightenment project, basically, we might ascend to a point of total knowledge. Um, but then, and really for the last 20 years, I've been so much more excited by ignorance <laughs> than, by, than by because that Because arrogance. that bird's eye view, that map view, tends automatically toward affordances. It's a question of yes. what can we do with this? Yes. What can we move from place to place? Such a good way of putting it. It moves towards affordances, exactly. It seeks opportunity, and what follows on from opportunity more often than not is exploitation. And and it is it is the kind of map maker's impossible dream. And we might compare that with the pass. And the pass is a landscape feature much more numerous than the peak, actually. Mm. But in the pass, you do reach a high point, but that high point only ever gives you partial view because your view is always blocked and you are within the landscape still through which you are moving and instead of the dream of total knowledge one has a sense of forwards progress but also of that which cannot be seen that which cannot be known and in that sense if we think of it prepositionally instead of walking up a mountain one walks into mm. a mountain when one when one moves towards the pass as the point 
that's my parable over for you, <laughs> over, <laughs> over and done with. But I guess the point of this is that ignorance utterly thrills me and becomes, for me, this kind of engine of of wonder. I will never, I will never know. This is a kind of tiny little glowfly, glowworm, firefly in the darkness that lights up a little bit around itself and then darts onto the next thing. That's uh, that's where I am. We're speaking two weeks after what will go down as the most iconic Everest photograph since Tenzing right. raised his flag bedizened ice axe on the summit in 53. We all know which photograph I think I'm talking yes. about. And it's the one of climbers queuing to die in the death zone at around eight 800 meters on Everest in what's generously called the weather window. And that just seemed to gather and convene so much of what was wrong. And I absolutely understand why, why Nepal issues the permits with the in the number that it does. It's, it's one of the world's poorest countries. This represents right. a multi-million dollar annual income to them. It's absolutely understandable. I have nothing but respect for the Sherpa communities who service this longing to reach the point of total knowledge where the world, you know, the summit selfie, the world's greatest summit <laughs> selfie can be taken. Those were people queuing for a selfie. I was thinking when you were talking about being inside the mountain, inside the pass, I was thinking of the films of uh, Hayao Miyazaki. Yes. Yeah. They're huge for me. Okay, me too. Ah, wow. And how the landscape, nature seems to, the people are dwarfed Absolutely. And they are grown through by, or they, in some ways they grow with and are grown by those fungal spores, those, those trees. And this is a nature that is not always sympathetic or companionable. It sometimes appears to be hostile and antagonistic, but is almost always opposed to a technocratic extractive right. <laughs> um, form of civilization. Well, um, it's, it's, it's weird as nature is. It right? is weird. It, it's not... <laughs> It defies our attempts to put it into into little boxes. The whole Miyazaki corpus, I, th I take to be a great kind of Anthropocene avant la lettre body of work. I think it sees so much so early. And it is uncanny. These are full of what Timothy Morton calls the strange strangers with which we share our, our lives, the substances and the matters and the creatures. But right. have you watched them from early on in your life? Or? I mean, I don't think so. I think I encountered them. I think I saw Spirited Away yeah. when it came out in the US. And then I've watched all of them since many with my son, who's who's 11 now. Oh, perfect. So, yeah. 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 There was something I was going to say in, in response to your question, which sure. which I never really answered, which is what happened when I came back from all of this. And I think two things. One is that I, I learned to love the living even more than I did already. I mean, there, there is a figure of a small child who runs through uh, Underland. Um, sometimes it's my son, four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, depending on where he is in the book. Sometimes it's the children of others um, in history. And something about the difficulty we have of anchoring value within the expanses of deep time, for me, because of who I am, it wouldn't be the same for everybody, seemed to come back time and time again to the body living, or in some cases dead, of a child and all that that held in terms of love. And 
And I think coming back to the surface, uh, if I can talk apparently grandiosely like that, I wasn't underground for six years or anything. <laughs> right, but, right. But I, I spend a lot of time thinking about these things. I think this love of this utter love of the miracle of living and the living was very strong for me. And it takes me back to what this physicist, dark matter physicist said when I say to him, what does it, you know, you know better than anyone else on a material basis that we are we are wisps, we are silk, we are gossamer, we are right. passed through by trillions of neutrinos and wimps every second. What does that make you feel? And he says, I walk on the cliffs near here with my wife and I hold the hand of the person I love and it makes it at once more astonishing and more ordinary that I am able to do so. And I, I loved that idea that even though we're, we're made of preposterous matter, we are still able to hold the hands of those we love and we don't fall through them. And that that grand scale vision shouldn't leave us with the sort of vague mystical wash of like, oh, therefore yes. we don't matter. Absolutely. Nothing, nothing we, in fact, I think you explicitly say this in the book, but I... I no, no, I, I'm agreeing with you, not yeah. because you're agreeing, not because you're repeating <laughs> back to me what I've said, but because I'm always so excited to find that idea because deep time could give us this the easiest of alibis and it does for many people and many all this shall pass all yeah. this shall pass yeah. the two planets who meet say i've got a bad case of homo sapiens <laughs> says one to the other and the other says don't worry it'll pass you'll get better soon and actually that is a very active myth i think in or ethical delusion at work in many political decisions that are made it's an escape hatch you know it's so, so, it, yeah. because it removes any responsibility for our actions totally yeah. and it also flattens vulnerability and responsibility away it says oh we're all in this together no we're not some of us have made it far more than other people some are suffering far more than other people mm. there are so many mm. decisions to be made up and down the scales of this problem so the deep time alibi whereas i argue for deep time as this astonishing wonder making ethically sharpening force once we see right. it we're like look it's so unlikely we exist we should not exist <laughs> right. in these expanses of universal <laughs> planetary time but here we are what are we making of this and what are we leaving behind and i think that point for me where deep time suddenly pivots and is not just something that is behind us but is ahead of us and then intergenerational justice if we want to call it that which is so active in climate politics youth politics greta thunberg the school strikes extinction rebellion in my country climate emergencies mm. being declared divestment movements these are all really deep time politics future deep time politics at work and it's exciting to me to see that beginning to happen Apropos of nothing, I don't want to forget to mention the fact that the other person I thought of repeatedly while reading while reading your work. So typically when we think of J.R.R. Tolkien, we're going to think of orcs and magic and, <laughs> and battles and so on, right? But the thing I've been struck by in reading and rereading The Lord of the Rings over the years is his obsession with landscapes and the detail of place and like yep. and how probably I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that 60% of that book is descriptions yes. of landscapes, you know, yes. and that immersion in the mountains, the passes, the bowers, you yeah. know. <laughs> no, you are so right. And also in 
animate trees that communicate as complex forest beings. Right, 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 right. <laughs> he doesn't quite identify the, the wood wide web, but it's assets. It's heading, it's leaning there. Uh, yeah, so two connections there. One is that my son, my six-year-old, who features briefly in the book, just before I left to come here, the last thing he said to me is more or less was, Dad, I would like you to read me Lord of the Rings. Ah. And I said, oh, that's going to take so long time to do that. And then, of course, I came in and I was like, what an invitation. I can do this. I can do it. A page at a time and we'll, you know, three I, years. I, did you do I it? I did it <gasps> with my son. Right. Yeah, this was like this was like last year or something. We read the whole thing. How did you do it? Did you yeah. do two, three pages at a trot? Yeah, and so, then just... you know, he was, he's a little older than, he was a little older than your son, I guess, is now. Your son is six, yeah? Six, yes. He um, won't be doing I, much I, of the reading. I think Emre was eight or nine, but... But yeah, I mean, every night for 10, 20 minutes, something like that wow. over the course of a n- number of months, six months. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. terrible. You've confirmed me. I'm <laughs> definitely going to do it. It is, it cool. is feasible. I want to I wanna hear back from you about how that project I will. Going. I will let you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the other thing is that there is a rhythm in Tolkien, which I realized only on like my third time through, which is the rhythm of risk and rest. Mm, so there will right. there will very often in a in a kind of episode be pursuit, battle, conflict, risk, and then at the end of the day or the the flight or or the chapter there mm. will be the fire, the food, the storytelling, the singing of songs. And I know that's as old as stories go. Well, it's but very funny because, you know, E.O. Wilson in his most recent book, he talks exactly about that as maybe the origin of culture, about how like during uh, the day, you know, the, the tribe is out, they're hunting, they're in sort of utilitarian mode, trying to figure out what they can do with the world, right? They have to <laughs> yep. get stuff, make Tool stuff, use, you know, yep, yeah, yep. whatever. And then at night around the fire, you know, when you have the campfire, it's an opening out. It's a it's a time of yep. storytelling, yep. and it's yep. a time of when you're receptive as opposed to active and manipulative yep. and, yep. and yep. extractive. I guess that's so well put. And when you recognize that, uh, I mean, we can frame it in evolutionary psychological terms as as he does, or we can frame it in narrative terms as Tolkien does. But I I realized when I identified that 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 gave this huge um, narrative pull and it does so in Tolkien as we know and I and in Underland really the whole thing kind of pivots back and forth between a sort of active mode and then a philosophical reflective analytical mode and and I think something about having those two in relation to one another is the equivalent of the fight and flight yeah and no, then I the, think so and then the story the, the fire yeah I mean there are some real adventure thriller moments in your story <laughs> like when you're in that what the hell is that thing called that that <laughs> oh, the shaft moulin, the moulin, yeah the moulin yeah. which yeah, means mill in French but the, is a it's a meltwater hole in the in the glacier yeah yeah and you're like repelling what is that English word you use for that repelling we say abseiling yeah abseiling um, yeah. yeah really I'm being lowered on a, on a complex pulley system we'd set up okay yeah, okay yeah. okay and, and, and then you're suddenly in this torrent of meltwater waterfall. Yeah, yeah, that was that bashed the hell out of me um, and was just knocking. It was it got into a pendulum swing where I'd get pummeled by the water, it would push me out of the flow, and then I would swing back into the flow and get pummeled by the water. And I say, oh, a perpetual motion machine. <laughs> <laughs> and you describe, I mean, as you do in other places with the pull of these deep, the maelstrom or the holes in the earth, this 
moment of almost where you almost want to submit, you know, where it's like, it's like you can feel yourself being pummeled into submission by this. By everything that that is pouring onto us. Yeah. And there's a temptation as it were, like what Poe called the imp of the perverse, you know, this, 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 this magnetic longing toward the abyss. Have you felt it ever? Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I know, I know, I know exactly what that is. And and there are many ways, you know, there are many ways of turning that into more than just a literal draw to a hole in the ground. I mean, we all I think we all feel the draw to the abyss sometimes and, um, and, and the imp of the perverse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which makes it mischievous uh, um, and memorable. It reminds me of Emerson's famous line about consistency being the hobgoblin of tiny minds. Oh, right. Right. I love that. I love, I love imagining that little hobgoblin. Yeah, so it, it licenses so many of my, of my infelicities and inconsistencies. I don't be such a hobgoblin. <laughs> exactly. What I've done is that I've become so enamored and hypnotized by this conversation that we've <laughs> we've used all of the time. We won't watch another okay. video. Um, Robert McFarlane and I, I just want to say thank you for a great conversation and for your book. And it was the first I'd encountered of yours, but I will be reading them all. Thank you for your time and your attention and all, all the digging we did together. So thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Just reminding you that on March 22nd will be the last episode of this show. And on May 12th, I am going to start something new called Clever Creature. Clever Creature with Jason Gotts. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.